Again, I want to just pray for a second. We've heard that Mark Dines has been in an accident, that he's in ICU. He was in a motorcycle accident, I think, yesterday. So I want to, first of all, pray for him and for Lexi and for their family. And then I just, I, I want to pray for what's happening this morning at our retreat facility. Well, not our retreat facility. <laughs> Um, at the retreat that uh, quite a few of our families are at today, and that God will use uh, that time that they're together uh, to draw them closer to Him and uh, transform them uh, into what He needs from all of us to reach this world. Let's pray. Father, our, our brother... Mark is, um, he needs you as the great physician. He needs the skill and the expertise and the training of the doctors and nurses and the techs that are caring for him. So we lift him up to you that uh, through your hand, you will bring healing and restoration to his body. We pray for Lexi, for their family that you would remove any anxiety and fear from their hearts, that they will trust in your provision. We're grateful for those who have been able to participate in the retreat this weekend and even as they're wrapping up this morning. We pray for the fire that is in their hearts for you to continue to burn strong, that others might come to know you because of the joyful way that we live, and we pray through Christ. Amen. Well, I'm not really sure why I thought this would be a good idea, but I went to the sermon feedback box from last week, and I thought, you know, maybe it'd be fun to read to you uh, some of the submissions that were in that big box of sermon feedback. So, I'm just going to read a couple to you, see how this turns out. It was the monkeys, not the beetles. Whatever. <laughs> the Beatles didn't sing that song. It was the monkeys. All right, that's funny, whoever wrote that. Please explain the William Shatner joke again. Now that I'm happy to do. But we don't have time. What? Did you grow up in Central America? Everyone knows it was the monkeys, not the Beatles. All right, all right, I get it, I get it. Even Buddy the Elf, who was raised by elves, knows it was the Beatles, you cotton-headed... Ah, anyway, I'm going to forget that. So apparently I misquoted a song last week, and no one gets this riled up when I misquote Jesus, but oh no! <laughs> Misattribute the Beatles, and suddenly it's like World War III out there, right? So I think at this point the best thing that we can do is just let it be. That's the Beatles, right? All right good, good. So, we're in a series in the Gospel of John, and what we're doing is we're looking at the lives of people who encountered Jesus, but we're more interested in what was the result in their lives after encountering Jesus. 
And so what we're doing is we're keeping before us the two questions that John poses of us as his readers. Who is Jesus? And what has Jesus come into this world to accomplish? And so today, from John chapter 3, we're going to look at the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. And yes, you heard correctly. We are in chapter 3, which means that our 36-week series in chapter 1 has come to an end. So there's great rejoicing among the people. Now, because we have limited time during this first hour, what I want to do is I want to explore this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus in just two messages. So we'll, we'll look at the first part today, and then we'll come back next week, Lord willing, and we'll look at the second part. What I want to do is I want to just look at the first five verses in John chapter 3, because there are some things that we learn about Nicodemus that, that if you have to understand the context of who Nicodemus is and what he is wanting when he comes from Jesus before you'll notice, John chapter 3 is one of the largest red-letter chapters in the Bible. At some point, Jesus starts talking and talks for a long time. And so, to make sense of everything that Jesus ends up telling Nicodemus, we we have to understand a little bit about who Nicodemus is and why he's coming to see Jesus. So next week, we'll, we'll do a little Paul Harvey. We'll come back and do the rest of the story of Nicodemus, a little bit of page two, and, and see where he appears again in the gospel writing. So if you'll have your Bibles in John chapter 3 and, and verse 1, I want to pray again, and then we'll dive in and look at some of these questions about who Nicodemus is. Father, we ask... Even now, as we are opening Your Word, that You open our hearts and our minds, that You would speak truth to us today. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. Now, depending on your Bible translation, John chapter 3, verse 1 has 15 words. At least that's the way it is in the English Standard Version. And we, we learn a lot about Nicodemus from just these 15 words. The Bible says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. So just in those 15 words, we're going to learn some key things about Nicodemus. And, and these, again, let me stress how important it is that we understand these things about Nicodemus if we're ever going to wrap our hearts around what Jesus is telling him. Now, the first thing is that he's a man, but that seems kind of obvious, so we won't spend much time on that one. We'll instead go to the second one, which says he's a Pharisee. Now, maybe you know or don't know, the Pharisees were a very strict, a very, very strict religious sect during the time of Jesus. In the Bible, you'll see the Pharisees and you'll see the Sadducees. The Sadducees were also a religious sect, but they weren't very strict. They were more of a political party, because we all know it's all political, obviously. And so you have the Pharisees, a very strict, a very religious, a very moral, moral faction or sect as a religious party. And, and, and as a part of this party, as a Pharisee, there were some things that, that, that come with it that we understand about him. Well, first of all, he's a ruler. The Pharisees were actually part of the ruling council of the day. And what we know of Nicodemus is that he is a member of the Sanhedrin. Whenever you see that word Sanhedrin in your Bible, 
It's in reference to a 70-member Jewish council that the Romans allowed to exercise judicial. I mean, they were the White House, the Congress, and the Supreme Court of the day. And the Romans allowed them to do this. They allowed them to have this kind of role of power and influence over the Jewish people. And so, if you were part of the Council of Seventy, if you were part of the Sanhedrin, if you were in charge, well, the last thing you wanted was someone who would come along and threaten your power base, who would threaten your kingdom. And so, I say this because... Nicodemus, as a part of this Sanhedrin, this ruling council, he would have been the kind of man who would have had his ear to the ground, his pulse on the people. He would be aware of those who were coming as a leader, those who were coming either claiming to be from God, pretending to be from God. And so, the question on everyone's mind Whenever someone would come in front of the people claiming to be the Messiah, well, the Sanhedrin wanted to talk to them. And so we know that he's a man, he's a ruler, he's a part of this ruling body, but we also know from verse 10, which is part of the response that Jesus gives to him, is that he is a teacher. Now, this is not just an occupation, but it's a class of people back then. So, to hear that you're a teacher, it's in the same category as if to say that you're a, a doctor or a, a lawyer, a teacher. It was a class not of people, not just an occupation. So, what do we learn about Nicodemus? Nicodemus is an educated, upper-class, conservative religious educator. That's who he is. If we were going to define Nicodemus in one word, it would be, in one phrase, it would be this. He is a very moral and very religious man. So that's who he is. Now let's look at how Nicodemus encounters Jesus. And for this, we're just going to look at the first few words of verse 2. This man, speaking of Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. So Nicodemus, this ruler, this very moral and religious man, he visits Jesus by night. Now, a lot is made of Nicodemus coming to visit Jesus by night. Some people say that it's out of fear because he's afraid of the repercussions of the retribution that he would receive from fellow members of the council. And we see this in the gospel stories. Uh, People who wanted to believe in Jesus but were afraid of the ruling council. So, if this is the reason that he comes to Jesus by night, then this sort of makes him like the cowardly lion. Now, some people say that the reason he visits at night is snobbery. Because of all the people who were around Jesus, you know, the rubble, the rabble, all the people who were with him at all times, they, they were not the most you know, uh, preferred people of the societal class. So, some people say, well, Nicodemus comes to him at night because of snobbery, because he wants to avoid mangling with the common folk. And this would make him a little more like Thurston Howell III, tax deduction. Some people say, no, really what's occurring here is that John is using a literary technique. Because what John does in his gospel is he's contrasting light and dark, day 
and night. And he does this all throughout the gospel, so this really is a a figure of speech. But you know what? Then again, it's possible that it was just the most convenient time, the first available time for Nicodemus to go, and it just happens to be at night. Something interesting that's often overlooked. It's actually intriguing. In verse 8, you see that Jesus, in his reply to him, he's, he's using a metaphor and he's talking about the wind. And, and some people say, you know, what Jesus has a habit of doing is he has a habit of, of looking around or using what's happening in the moment to explain a point. And so some people look at this and say, this is really interesting because we have just walked into a Snoopy novel. It was a dark and stormy night. And so if we understand this, that the wind is howling, the wind is raging, it's dark, and so now we can see Snoopy on top of the doghouse with his typewriter. It was a dark and stormy night when a very moral and a very religious person comes to meet Jesus. Now let's look at what he wants. What is it that Nicodemus is expecting from Jesus? What is it that Nicodemus wants from Jesus I want to suggest to you that Nicodemus is coming to ask Jesus a question that he never gets to ask. That he never gets to ask. Let's let's look at this. So, if you're back in your Bibles in John chapter 3, look at the second part of verse 2, which says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so what do you notice about the way Nicodemus speaks to Jesus? The first thing that you should notice is that he's respectful. He's respectful. Uh, he calls him rabbi, and, and at this day and this time, there was, there was no qualification, really, to be a rabbi. There was no course, no college, no certification. There was no association, no registry, and no union dues. To be a rabbi simply meant you had people who were following you, and you were teaching them something. In fact, this word, rabbi, it's actually an Aramaic word. And the Bible is filled with these kind of words where a word in one language is transliterated. They took the Aramaic word and just used the corresponding Greek letters and they just pronounced it the same. The same thing happens with the word deacon. Deacon is a transliterated word. That's not what the word really means. It's just been moved from one language to another into that same language. And so, rabbi is Aramaic, and that's how it sounds, and that's how the letters are. So, they just bring those words over, and it does literally mean teacher. So, when Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi, he's actually saying teacher. And when Jesus responds to Nicodemus, he says, aren't you the teacher? He could have said, aren't you the rabbi of Israel? Same word being used there. Again, it just means someone who is teaching someone But here's the thing. One of the things that made the ruling council marvel, yes, the Sanhedrin, the the rule of 70, what made them marvel about Jesus is they were listening to what He said, they were listening to His teaching, and they marveled. Do you know why? They marveled because He lacked a formal education. 
That was what they said. I mean, sure, he's a carpenter's son, and he has a handle on some basic things. Sure, he can build something, but the boy never went to school. He never had any formal training, no classic religious education. And so this ruling council of 70, when they come to Jesus, the Bible tells us they marvel as they did with the disciples of Jesus, perceiving them to be uneducated people. In John chapter 7, verse 15, they actually say this about Jesus. How is it that this man has this learning when he has never studied? That was said about me in high school, by the way. Except it was more like, how is it that this man has graduated when he never studied? You know, well, it was a different time. It was a different age. So he comes to Jesus. He's respectful. I want to show you that I think that he's inquiring of Jesus. That's why he's here. He has a question for Jesus. Notice again in verse 2, he says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then do you see what happens? I think these, are, these words, they're the preamble to a question. This is Nicodemus' way of getting Jesus to relax, to not be threatened. And I think he has a question, a question that he never gets to ask. Now, let me tell you why I think this. The Sanhedrin, they're very aware of Jesus by now. They're aware of him. They know what's going on. They, I mean, he's more than just a blip on their radar. Every Sanhedrin meeting probably opens with, okay, we need a case report from case number 4,965, Jesus of Nazareth. What's he up to today? Because the Bible tells us they keep sending people. They keep sending people to ask him questions, to try to trap him in something that he says. And so they're aware of him. They know what's going on. And so this visit by Nicodemus at night, it brings up a a whole world of possibilities. Listen, plenty of people have come onto the scene of this day claiming to be the Messiah. Plenty of people had come before Jesus, uh, either welcoming or attributing themselves to being the Messiah. And so we can also imagine that Nicodemus has seen a fair share of people who have come forward saying, yep, I'm the one. And plenty of people have come forward as fake faith healers. Plenty of people who are coming along and they can heal you from something that you can't really quantify But there's something about Jesus that's different. This is what is the most amazing thing. Jesus is not simply healing people of back pain. He's bringing people back from the dead. Jesus is not simply healing muscle bruises. He's regrowing muscle and bone and tissue. (laughs) Jesus is not just healing headaches He's restoring sight to the blind. He's handling the hard cases. He's tackling the tough tasks. He's digging in to the demanding work. A faith healer, a fake faith healer can fake heal someone of things that no one can see. But what Jesus is doing is evident even to them. Oh, He's different. 
do you realize that if Jesus would have just said, yep, I've come from God to teach, they never would have killed him? Even if he had said, yep, you're right, I come from God and that's why I'm doing all these signs that you see, and had he left it at that, they'd have said, okay, that's great. It wasn't his teaching, it wasn't his signs, it was that he claimed to be God. I think this is what Nicodemus has come in the darkness of this windy night to ask Jesus this question, are you the Messiah? Do you remember what we've already seen in John chapter 1 when Andrew goes to see Simon? What does he say? We have found the Messiah. The same thing is said when Philip goes and talks to Nathaniel. We have found the one. We have found the one that the Scriptures, don't you see? In this time, not just the religious leaders would have had their eye on the horizon waiting for the Messiah to come, but every person, every single person, the, the highest of the high to the lowest of the low, it didn't matter what your occupation was. It didn't matter what your class was. It didn't matter what you did. None of that mattered. They all had hearts tuned. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, what's the question they ask of him? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? And so this is on the hearts and minds of everything. And I think this is what Nicodemus has come to ask Jesus. We know you're from God. No one could teach the way you do unless you were from God. No one could do the signs that you do unless you're from God. And then notice what happens in verse 3. Jesus interrupts him. He interrupts him. Jesus, this, this is 3.3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so could you go back to verse 2? And if you're looking at your Bibles, look in verse 2. Do you see a question in there? There's not a question in there. I mean, all we have is the, man, you look so good today. Did you get your hair done? right? Because you're leading up to, can I borrow the car? So, so, so Nicodemus says these wonderful, true things, and he doesn't get a chance to ask the question that's on the mind of everyone, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's going to usher in the kingdom? That's what Nicodemus wants to talk about. But for some reason, Jesus doesn't let him answer or ask the question. Now, um, look at the reply of Jesus, and you'll see in verse 3, this is the real subject. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Next week, we're going to talk more about this phrase, born again, what Jesus really means and how this applies to our lives today. Just for now, just keep in your mind that the word born again it literally means born from above. Born from above. Born from above. What does that mean? What is Jesus telling him? Jesus, the son of a carpenter with no formal education or training, 
looks at one of the most moral and one of the most religious persons he's ever met and said, it's not going to get you into the kingdom. Your morality is not going to get you into God's kingdom. Your religion is not going to get you into God's kingdom. The only way that you will see, the only way that you set foot into the kingdom is if God, from above, does the work that needs to happen in your life. Do you see what a challenging thought this is? See, unfortunately, we've had a lot of history of viewing salvation as a transactional event, as a single point of sell transaction. And yes, it's true, in a moment, you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know what I've learned? I can be a very moral person, but I can't transform my heart. I can be a very religious person, I mean, with the best of them, but I can't transform my heart. Jesus is not objecting to morality. He's not objecting to religion. He's objecting to the kind of morality and religion that has no need for the cross. That's what he's objecting to. Because there is a kind of morality, there is a kind of religion that says, I don't really need the cross. I'm doing just fine. And it's really strange if you think about it because, you know, we often think that the, the, the amoral person is excluded from the kingdom just because they're amoral. And Jesus is saying the most moral people on earth are excluded from the kingdom if they think their morality is what's saving them. So at one time or another in our lives, we are still either the younger brother out living how we want to or the older brother still in the father's house living begrudgingly and we failed to miss that moment by moment by moment by moment because of the cross, we are transformed. So what Jesus is doing, what he is telling to a very moral and a very religious man is this. You're going to have to trust in something else than your morality and your religion to save you. I, I feel like I need to say this every time. The moral life, the religious life happens because of the cross, not to get to the cross. It happens because of the cross. We come from the cross with hearts that are being transformed moment by moment by moment because we want to live differently, but we only know that this happens if God is transforming us. There's one more thing I didn't tell you about Nicodemus. That's what his name means. His name means innocent blood. Innocent blood. Don't you see? Jesus is telling him, you need innocent blood 
shed for you to step foot into the kingdom. And it's right in front of you. Let's pray. Father, you, you know that every single person, I, wow, we've, we've lived moral lives, we've lived religious lives, and we've still struggled with darkness in our heart. Would you break in? Would you disrupt our morality and our religion with grace? Would you disrupt our heart? Would you do the work that only you can do? Through the power of the resurrected Lord and your transforming spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to share in another song. And if you're here this morning and you would like to receive Jesus Christ, we invite you to come. If you want someone to pray with you while the elders are going to be up front in the aisles, they're here to receive you, to pray prayers of victory, of praise, to pray prayers of sorrow and tears with you. Whatever your response may be, please, please come as we share together.